if any money were to be clawed out of EPA, it wouldn't hurt church programs at all. You could, they could lose a hundred billion dollars. Just snap your fingers, there, it's gone. No member would know. Not one program would be impacted, and it would start growing all over again and be another hundred billion dollars in another twenty-two years. Another hundred billion dollars in another twenty-two years. That poor woman in Mexico that I can see her face right now from when I served on my mission there. They gave everything to the church and lived with dirt floors, and they they need to be given that money back and with an apology, you know, because taking money from them and just hoarding it, hoarding it, hoarding it, hoarding it, they were spending five percent of their assets each year on something religious, educational, or charitable. Then, how big would EPA be today? It wouldn't be a hundred and one billion, right? It would be about thirty something, thirty four, thirty five billion. So that delta is sixty six billion. That's the amount of money that implicitly, I mean, there's no formal contract between EPA and the American public, but that was the implicit understanding: is the amount of value that would be put into society that didn't go into society. And sixty-six billion dollars—that's a lot of public trust that I think was violated. And the public should know that, and the church members should know that that trust was violated of the public, and they needed to come up with an opinion as to whether that kind of behavior is um, is representative of what uh, the Lord's Church would do if you were here in person. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today, Tom Perry and myself sit down with Lars Nielsen, who put together a letter for the IRS director focusing on the EPA, which is a 501c3 extension of the Mormon Church. It's where, uh, I think the number he gave was $124 billion worth of tithing reserves are stored, and he's got a story to tell about it. So we're going to listen to Lars' story today. That's your episode of Infants on Thrones. Enjoy. All right. Lars. Glenn, Tom, thanks for having me. I've always been a fan of Infants on on Thrones from the very beginning. You can say Infants on Thrones. (laughs) <laughs> you can call it infants on thrones. That's it's I, it's very infant appropriate to call it infants on thrones. Infants on thrones. Yeah. Uh, indeed, I I had a lisp when I was a kid, and sometimes when I'm nervous, it comes back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so uh, why don't you explain, Lars, why we're here? Why we're here having this conversation? This is your show. Yeah. Well, I thank you for that. I guess I would let you know a little bit about who I am. And then when the world changed and I got my hands on this information, and you can understand the kind of person that I was when I got my hands on this information, and that kind of caused me to behave in a certain way um, in making the information known to others. Can can you give just like a a quick summary of what that information is that you got your hands on so people just tuning in will know generally what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so a couple of months ago, an employee or former employee of Enzyme Peak Advisors, which is a 501c3 organization to the Mormon Church, it is sometimes called the Reserve of the Reserves. It is where all the tithing surplus and all the investment returns from tithing surplus just grow and grow and grow. It's called a supporting organization or an integrated auxiliary to the church. Anyways, when I spoke to 
people who worked at that organization and got certain information, it really just blew my mind that the, the size of the assets of the Mormon church that so few people really know about, and then what they have done and what they haven't done with those assets, and the statements that the leaders of the church have made publicly about what they have and haven't done with those funds contradict the facts as they've been explained to me. And that was enough that I felt like I had a duty to the Mormon, to the former Mormon, and to the American taxpayer to get the information into the hands of someone who could then vet it and publish it to the world. And so that's essentially why I did what I did. Um, the details of the information I've put together into a, a PDF document that's 74 pages long. And uh, one person decided to submit that analysis alongside a Form 211 IRS whistleblower claim to the IRS. And so because my analysis was used and submitted under penalty of perjury um, by someone else, I feel like I'm okay sharing that information with reporters and um, with other interested parties such as yourselves. All right. So what you're going to be talking with us today, is, you said there's a 74 page document that was submitted to the IRS. When, when was it submitted? Uh, so this is over a month ago now. Okay. Yeah. We, I called it letter to an IRS director and that is a little bit of a hat tip to Jeremy Reynolds with his letter to a CES director. Yeah, I saw so kind that. Of colloquially, I'm calling it the IRS letter. Um, of course, the purpose in writing it was just the, as Jeremy Reynolds did it to say, I went out at one point to a CES director and had questions and I didn't get my questions satisfactorily answered. And so now I need to write it as if I were writing to him, but it's for the world to see and to understand what's going on. And I liked the spirit that in which he did that. And so kind of as a homage to that, I, I took a similar title. But in that expose, I just lay out a few points and I'll, I'll hit some of the high ones and you guys can stop with your reactions when you first got this information and any reactions you have now. I'd love to hear your thought too. But hey, before you go on, so in, in making that parallel to the CES letter, um, you submitted it to the IRS. Um, ha have you heard from them at all, or is it um, what, what, what? What's typical in that situation when you send something into the IRS? It's a great question. So the IRS whistleblower process is a very long one with many steps. The first process about submission takes anywhere from three to six months, and that's kind of an initial review that happens from a, the the uh, submission ICE team. They call it. It's the initial claim evaluation unit. Yeah, and that unit actually of all places, exists in Ogden, Utah, where 90% of the employees of that firm are Mormon. And that unit then decides over a period of three to six months whether or not it should pass to the next phase of evaluation in which a larger team is put on it to do field work. That can take anywhere between one to two to three years, depending on how many counts they're looking at and how serious the uh, clawbacks would potentially be. Mm. And then at that point, they enter negotiations with the potential offender and try to come to a resolution and or a settlement. If it doesn't, then it goes to tax court. That can be another year or two, plus appeals can be another year or two. So 
on average, these things take seven to 10 years. Seven is looking good if people don't want to comply and they want to obstruct or legally go through obfuscation or obstruction, you know, try to use their lawyers to push people away for as long as they can. So it, it can be quite a process. And I decided that I personally was not okay with keeping this information from the public for seven years. And it, it, I, th- I think that they deserve better than that. Okay. So, so give us some, I mean, just hearing you talk and, and just listening to and watching your YouTube video, I got to admit, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. So, if, so can you give sort of your bona fides a little bit? Are, do you have an accounting background? Is it a lawyer background? Uh, yeah, thanks. I guess I should have included that when you asked for my background at the beginning. Yeah. I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes, Glenn. Um, <laughs> I, I have a PhD in organic chemistry uh, from Harvard University. Um, when I finished that, I decided to get an MBA. And so I just kind of rolled into the Harvard Business School from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So that was another two years. And I finished that in 2009. And my emphasis at the time was, and still is, healthcare consulting and information technology consulting. And so I've spent uh, quite a bit of my life since then. So I moved to Minnesota, the job here, worked for organizations like United Health Group, Optum, and the Mayo Clinic. That's where I've been working the most most recently. And, uh, and I enjoy it quite a bit. So I do have a lot of scientific training, a lot of critical thinking training, and then I do have a, a fair amount of business training, but I was never an accountant and I've never worked in finance per se, but I can, I can understand it pretty well. And a lot of what's in the expose is not about analyzing journal entries or uh, particulars of the IRS code. I'm not trained in the legal sense, but, um, but I have done extensive research in those areas and I've consulted with law firms and several experts in making sure that everything that I did write in the expose was, was accurate. And, um, and I, I stand behind it. And the, the whistleblower who made this submission stands behind it too under penalty of perjury. So, you know, it's the best that an amateur, but a pretty educated and informed amateur could do under the circumstances, I, in my opinion. So does that, does that answer your question, Tom? Absolutely. I mean, did, I, that slapped that Harvard right across your face and you didn't say yeah, anything. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. You know, the, <laughs> the, the, the PDF too is really well organized and structured. Um, and even though you, you say that it, you're taking more of an amateur style or an approach to this. I mean, I think you're undercutting, at least from my perspective, the research and the, I don't know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's through all this. Just knowing that, I mean, just at the onset, you said that it's going to take anywhere from seven to 10 years. I had no idea. Like, yeah. that's, that's incredible information that you've already gathered. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, my goal was to make it impossible for the, well, it had that dual purpose, right? Serving, using this expose for uh, the members and, and the general public, but also for the IRS. And I didn't want, when the IRS would look at it, for them to be able to dismiss anything out of hat. I wanted them to be able to say, okay, this guy has really well researched this. Every single reference, every quote that I've ever made of a general authority with regards to the finances of the church, you know, you can see the exact reference uh, page number of whatever document or periodical or whatever it was um, to make it easier for them and to make it difficult to ignore if they were inclined to or if maybe there were some biases by people who were in that initial claim evaluation unit. 
Yeah. Really, well, it sounds like you, you've essentially, you know, made yourself somewhat bulletproof from, you know, this getting thrown out in any, I don't know, uh, documentation reason or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. So when I, when the IRS creates a claim, they have a, they have a process that's very rigid that they have to adhere to. And there are certain kind of exit ramps from that highway that they can take and they're allowed to use discretion at certain points. However, if the evidence is a little overwhelming, then when they get to those turnoffs, they really can't take them. They kind of have to take it to the next step. And so much money is at stake here that I think it would also be, you know, uh, I can't imagine a director at the IRS saying we have an ability to collect billions of dollars from one client alone that could fund our entire program for several years if this is all verifiable. And it looks like just all the references that are there are so readily verifiable that some of the things that are difficult to verify, for example, documents internal to the company are harder for them to immediately fact check, but it gives them a basis for starting their case you know, and some place to start doing investigating. And when they call up the EPA employees and say, is it right if I see this document, I understand that it exists, then the EPA can hardly say, uh, we don't have that document. We don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, this, this whole thing is curious because I remember when I was, you know, everyone that's gone through a faith crisis kind of goes through this process of thinking about the church's finances and the ethical ramifications because, once you start to get the idea or notion that the church isn't being honest or transparent about, I mean, even just their books and, and mm. some of their teachings, I mean, how far does it go? And most people make those connections to the finances. And there's been a lot of speculation in all the years I've been involved in ex-Mormonism where people are saying, I wonder how much the mm -hmm. general authorities make and how much money they've got invested in properties. And clearly, Lars, you have been able to answer or at least get a really good idea on some of these big questions that kind of get floated around. Yeah, so the nice thing that I've seen so far is that it doesn't seem like Enzyme Peak Advisors itself has done much to inure to the leadership of the Mormon church or to certain general authorities. It doesn't seem like they have been benefiting personally from the kind of hoarding, if I'll use that word, that EPA mm -hmm. has been doing. The reasons why they're sitting on and collecting and growing so much capital without using it, I think is a profound one that is deep in terms of doctrine. It's deep in terms of management interests for the church. How do you manage such a large church? I think it has less to do with the nefarious reasons that you would think of, you know, when you when you think about mega churches and people with private jets and secret homes on islands and stuff like that. I've not been able to unearth any of those things. You did allude to how much money in terms of stipends or annual allotments, mission presidents or other general authorities get and perks, kids going to, uh, grandkids being able to go to BYU tuition free. There's lots of that kind of stuff that is happening, but none of that is happening on the EPA side. It's all happening on the COP side. And I think for your listeners, it might be helpful to make that distinction clear really quickly. There's mm -hmm. the corporation of the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that's the principal legal entity under which all other legal entities, Desert Management Corporation, with all of its for-profit businesses, and Desert Trust Company, and just so many legal entities all roll up to what we call the COP. And so that's kind of like a pyramid. 
off to the side, not part of that pyramid is this 501c3, has no equity owners, and that is EPA, and that's actually a trust, and the trustees of that are members of the first presidency, like Henry B. Eyring and Nelson and Oaks, and they kind of control slash govern how the monies that are in this reserve of the reserves are, are going to be used, if used at all, but that's on the reserve side, not on the COP side. So all of this other speculations about stipends and things like that is stuff that happens you know, upstream to that, so to speak. My, my understanding, Lars, of that, the, the COP side is um, that, that and, and remind me, what does it stand for? The, the church? Corporation, oh, corporation of the president. Of the president or of the person or the, is it of the person of, or of the president? Yeah, it's corporation of the president of okay. the church. Of and, and that's just a single person. That's whoever the, the, the prophet is. That's right. And, 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 and didn't, didn't that start back in like the 1890s or something when the U.S. government was coming after the church because of polygamy? So I am not a historian, so I don't know the nature of the legal entities that existed before the modern church. You know, the church was incorporated and had moved across several states in terms of being a financial institution in Ohio yeah. and then Missouri, Illinois, and of course, then the Wild West. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that its current structure as a corporation's soul right. um, was a structure that was devised before they went to Utah. So I can't speak to the structure. Yeah, the, the, and, and, and the, the way I remember it was that it, it, it had to do with the, um, when, when the U.S. was coming after Utah territory. Mm -hmm. um, but, but at any rate, the, the, the only reason I bring that up is because you talk about the COP side and then you talk about the EPA side and, and the, the EPA side is much easier to pinpoint because it was in the nineties the and, and yeah. there was a very clear reason why that was created uh, according to what you wrote in that letter. Right. So in 1997, some people might remember that Times Magazine wrote uh, a piece on Mormonism and the, it was a cover story and it was called Mormons Inc. And it really riled from what I understand. I was a student at BYU at the time, so I didn't have any firsthand knowledge. But since then, I've heard a lot of the lore from EPA employees that it really caused the church to react. And so they, they decided to move the investment department of the church out of the COP side and to create this new entity. They developed their articles of incorporation, made their representations to the IRS, got their 501c3 tax exempt status, and then all monies from then on would be growing there. And the process by which they grow from contributions is that Mormons make contributions every week to their local unit, and then that information gets swept into um, an account on the COP side, and then monies are pulled out of that to be given to the corporation of the presiding bishopric or CPB. And then they use that money to pay for all of the normal expenses of the church, you know, maintenance, electricity, temples, whatever it is, salaries of church employees. And then whatever is left is tithing surplus. That tithing surplus then flows periodically into EPA, into its treasury account. There it grows until it gets of such a size that they know that the money won't be needed for anything, which has never been really used for anything, except for in two instances, which I'll tell you about later. But then as that money grows, they need to put it into allocated capital. And for that, they have portfolios. And there's a U.S. stocks portfolio. There's an international stocks portfolio. There's a private equity portfolio. There's a credit duration portfolio, a cash portfolio, and a hybrid instruments portfolio. And those are all financial 
assets uh, in allocated capital. And then they also have real estate, which is actually maintained through two different legal entities called ARI and PRI. But all of that you can imagine is the entire what we call EPA universe. And the size of that today is about $124 billion, which was a very shocking thing for me to have learned. I knew from when I was at Harvard, and I, I, I just stay up on this because I care about that alma mater, that the size of their annual or their endowment currently is about $39 billion. And so EPA alone, which is just one of many reserves, it's the biggest of the reserves that the Mormon church has, is three times Harvard's endowment. And Harvard has come under a lot of fire for not using their endowment enough. Once the endowments get so big, the public kind of gets skittish when they're like, what are you using the money for? Could you be saving it or siphoning it off for nefarious purposes? Convince us that, that it really is being used for reasons that the public should give its, it a tax-exempt status. And so, but that's obviously not happening with EPA. No one knows about it. Only like 15 people in the world know about it, at least in terms of its total sizes uh, of all of its assets. And that was that was very troubling to me, especially given statements that I saw the brethren, especially the presiding bishopric, give in 2018 to, in my opinion, you know, intentionally mislead the members of the church and maybe even the IRS into thinking that the assets of the church were much smaller than they actually were. I mean, can, can, can you give some numbers around this so, so we know what you're talking about with the, the size of the EPA? Yeah, so the total size of the allocated capital at EPA today is about $124 billion. And we show what the breakdown is, how many billions are in stocks and how much are in bonds and that kind of stuff in the full paper. This would be Exhibit A in the full paper. You might remember that WikiLeaks announced in 2018, I think in May of 2018, that someone had discovered that there were 13 LLCs that happened to have domain names that were registered to the same organization that had taken care of some sites that are on mormon.org and lds.org. And so this random, presumably non-Mormon out there, wondered whether or not those 13 LLCs created on the same day you know, were owned by the Mormon church. And so put things together and did some little investigative work and found out that they were. And that caused a little bit of a panic inside of EPA because they didn't want people to know the size of their U.S. stocks position. The report was that $32 billion was the total size of the U.S. domestic stocks that the Mormon church would have owned. And it was substantially correct. There was another $3.5 million, a billion dollars, excuse me, that was uh, externally managed at the time. And there were some other problems. One of the LLCs wasn't actually a stock LLC. It was a private equity LLC and that they couldn't have known at the time, but I found out later. And as a result, it turns out that the Mormon church had about 35 billion in stocks at the time. It's a little bit more than that now, probably more around 40. But knowing exactly how much money we have in stocks and in bonds and international foreign exchange and in private equity, those kinds of things, it really dawned on me that this church doesn't have any plans for growth. When I interviewed this EPA in employee who became the whistleblower, this person told me that year after year, quarter after quarter, when the leaders of EPA go to the First Presidency and the Council of the Presiding Bishopric, and they ask, what is it that you want us to spend the money on? What is it you want us to plan for? There are never any plans communicated. There's no liability stream. There's never been a call for capital from the allocated capital. And it doesn't look like there ever will be. And the going kind of assumption is that that money is going to be used in the millennium or maybe in the war leading up to the millennium. And that's a troubling idea to me too. You know, 
can religious institutions really hoard hundreds of billions of dollars with tax exemption and not perform any charitable work or religious or educational work and then say that they're doing that so that 100 years from now they can fight a battle if they need to or 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 next month you don't know well, yeah, it's no, true. It's no, no one time. knows the date or the the hour. I mean, come on, Lars. So, uh, so, so, in order in order for the EPA to have been established as a five hundred one c three, like what what are the requirements? Like, what what is it supposed to do in order to get that tax uh, right. exempt status? Right. Whenever you make a representation to the IRS to become a 501c3, and I'll say that the regulations around churches becoming 501c3s is very, very lax. In other words, they grant you your 501c3 tax exempt status without you asking for it. You don't actually have to file for it. If you ever get audited and when you submit your taxes for any unrelated business income, then it becomes apparent. But even to get established in the United States right now, it's a surprisingly easy to do so as a, as a religion. But you do have to have an Articles of Incorporation document. And in that document that the Mormon Church put together, it, it states that all monies that come to EPA from the COP will be irrevocably dedicated to religious, educational, and charitable purposes, and that no money from that can ever inure to the benefit of a trustee um, or to any individual person. And then there are certain other requirements. But once you do that, then, and you are a 501c3, you become a supporting organization of type one, type two, or type three. And each one of those have slightly different expectations for the nature of the relationship between the parent and the and the 501c3 and they each have different rules for how you can use your money like how much is there a minimum for example that you have to spend each year of your assets on something charitable in order to continue having your status for example if you're a type 3 organization there is a minimum that's different than if you're a type 2 organization so they made all these representations in 1997 and they put one to two billion dollars into EPA from the COP tithing surplus every year and then that money would just continue to grow tax-free and then with all of the compounding it's now gotten to a point where with about 20 25 billion dollars in real estate assets if you take that off of the 124 total that they have it's between 99 and 101 billion dollars in really highly liquid stuff this is like stocks and bonds and and things that could be sold relatively quickly if they need to um, one of the exhibits in the full paper says that 85% of the total amount of money could be liquidated in three months if the church needed that kind of cash so quickly. I mean, who has ever heard of an organization needing $85 billion in cash within three months? <laughs> but it, it exists, right? This is what, that, that's how they, uh, they structure their money. Does this, does this include the land? Because I know that a lot has been speculated as, as to how much like actual physical land the church owns. So in that number 99 to 101 billion that I quoted, that contains zero land. There are many reserves for land that the church has. The two most significant ones are ARI and PRI, and they are on the EPA universe, but they're not part of that 101 billion. They're another 20-ish billion um, off to the side. And inside of that include things like 2% of all the land of the state of Florida and vast tracts of land in Nebraska and Canada for cattle grazing and for lots of other things. Yeah, in Missouri, they own yeah. a lot too. Yeah. yeah, it's all over the place. They're, and it makes sense. If you've got so much money that you don't know how to spend it on a 
religious educational charitable purpose, it's very difficult to buy lots of little things. And so you end up trying to buy lots of big things. It's the best way to put down billions. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Like we'll just take this entire state, I guess. Wow. Yeah. So it, 1997 is when it started, but it was all a reaction to that Times Magazine article because they feared that if there would be maybe an audit of a church program or BYU's student loan program, for example, that receives federal funding, it would be important for them to be able to, to pass federal audits. But if BYU has got a share of a fund inside of Enzyme Peak Advisors, and in order to pass an audit, you'd have to know what the size of Enzyme Peak Advisors would be, that could be a very serious problem. So they then embarked on a way of structuring things so that everything in EPA would be completely walled off from every other thing, all the affiliates, so to speak, that the COP has. That makes it easier to keep the money hidden. And then you might ask, why are, would they never spend any money on anything religious, educational, or charitable? And why are they trying to hide all the money that they do have? And I don't know if you guys have any theories about why they would do that. I've got some, and I laid a few out in the paper. So I'm happy to share some of those thoughts. Well, I mean, oh, th this, yeah, this is a fun little speculative area here. I, I think that the church... I think I think there's several different things that it need the church needs to do. It needs to not provide for the members because they need to show the members self-sufficiency or reliability. One of the things you talked about in the video was they have more than enough money to cover all the LDS full-time missionaries and yeah. then some for a long period of time. And that to me would be the most obvious or most <laughs> easiest thing to do just cover the full-time missionaries don't don't make that a financial burden on so many families out there but i think they i'm just guessing i think some of the old-time apostles and prophets or whatever they think that no these families even if it's financially hard on them they still need to know the importance of sacrifice yeah i think that you're right i think there are i think it's i think it's greed because the church wants more milk strippings <laughs> they, they want all of them. All they, they've still got that complex, right? Yeah. Uh, what was the name of that apostle from the very beginning that did that? Uh, it was Thomas B. Mars, right? right? But, Thomas but I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a different church than the one that instituted the United Order and the Law of Consecration, right? True. I do think that, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later, that there are a lot of cultural carryovers from the days of Joseph Smith that clearly have gotten into the brethren and stayed with the brethren today and in, in the EPA that causes them to behave maybe or to justify certain behavior that maybe an outsider would say would be difficult to understand, but maybe you can if you understand some of these historical and cultural nuances from the times of Joseph Smith. But I think that what's really going on is a couple of things. One, the church doesn't have the infrastructure to spend $8 billion per year to keep the reserve of the reserves from growing any further. In other words, if you're past $100 billion and they're making 7% annual return, that's $7 billion. And they're also getting one or two billion of tithing surplus left over. So let's just say at a minimum, they have $8 billion to spend every year to keep themselves from growing any bigger. 
how can they possibly do that? If the church were to announce some amazing partnership with the Bill Gates Foundation or someone else to, to put malaria nets everywhere or to cure a certain kind of disease, $8 billion a year on some mega initiative, Bill Gates Foundation has done amazing things. They've only spent $41 billion, I say only, you know, <laughs> over you know, the last decade. We're talking about the Mormon church needing to spend more than $8 billion every year in order to not grow any further. And if they tried to do anything, it would immediately reveal the size of their assets and then immediately reveal that they haven't been doing with any, anything with those assets for 22 years. And I believe that that would create such a reactionary ripple through Mormondom that they don't want that to happen. So they have to keep it quiet and not spend any of the money and say that it must be for some future purpose like Armageddon or post-apocalyptic reconstruction or whatever it is, <laughs> um, which, which of course the, the IRS would never say counts as a legitimate tax-exempt purpose, um, <laughs> right? They wouldn't. Nope. And so they have to hide the money so that they can hide the fact that they can't think of anything to do with the money. I think that's the principal concern. The second concern is that the best way to manage the church is through tithing. You know whether or not a ward is going to divide or consolidate based on whether or not there's tithing surplus per member that comports with other metrics of comparable stakes and wards. And you, you can identify people who would be best to rise up through the ranks of the holy priesthood based on whether or not they pay a full tithing and whether or not that tithing is based on net or gross, right? The, yeah. I think it's easier to manage the dedication of members and to set expectations on members if they're going to put their money where their mouth is. And if they didn't have that, especially for a lay church, I mean, it's one thing if you have paid clergy that is supported by the members in their seminary programs, that we don't have anything like that. State presidents, bishops, you know, they're all lay people. And in order to kind of keep control in the masses, you need some very strong levers and some very solid metrics. And I think that's what tithing does for the leadership of the church. Yeah. I, st I still think that it would be a really good idea if they just slowly started to implement some really strong charitable things. Mm -hmm. You're right. That they would never get to a point where it's like, all right, well, this year we're going to spend eight to $10 billion in some, because yeah, that would draw too many eyes. But yeah. if they just started making small steps, like every year, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to pay, we're going to pay for this or, you know, just something, but yeah, yeah. it's hard it'd, to it'd know. Nice. I'm, I think the missionary program is, in a, is a great example. Some of the facts behind that one that you introduced is that there are 70,000 purportedly missionaries in the world today, and, in, and all of them pay $400 per missionary per month, and they've decided that they need to raise that by 25% to $500 per missionary per month starting in 2020 for 20 different countries. And that's a significant rate increase you it know is. like health insurance premiums don't increase that significantly why why would they need to do that especially if you're sitting on a hundred billion dollars and if you just do the math the whole missionary program would only be 336 million with an m dollars per year and they put 200 times that into the reserve of the reserves every year and that is on top of the hundred billion that's already there why if we're a missionary church why make it so hard $500 yeah, a month. I know that's that makes me kind of sick to my stomach. Not kind of that makes me really sick to my stomach because I actually know some real close friends of mine that have like two missionaries out at once. Right, that's it's a big burden. 
It really it is. is. It really is. And you think, well, doesn't the Mormon church do a lot of amazing stuff? I see stuff on, you know, Mormons with yellow t-shirts, you know, on YouTube mm-hmm. and I, all of these humanitarian aid efforts. What are they? President Oaks announced in 2018 at a seminar that he gave in Oxford University that the Mormon church gives on average pretty close to $40 million a year globally to all humanitarian aid efforts and that they've been doing that consistently for 30 years, which of course, you do the math on that, that's $1.2 billion nominally. That might seem like a lot of money, but why would President Oaks boast that that is a testimony to the world that we're doing an amazing work when, you know, that doesn't even make the fourth or fifth decimal place when you talk about EPA's overall budget, right? Well, see, I think that that's a, that's also a testament to them wanting to keep these numbers so secret. And I even think that there might be a possibility that whether they are sort of keeping it out of sight and out of mind, even for the people who are in the know, like I, I, my mind keeps going to like the two year food storage. If, if, if you keep throwing things down in the storage area and you keep forgetting what's down there, then yeah. it's almost like there's nothing down there until, well, you know, we have it and for safekeeping, it's a safety net. That's all it is. It's, it's not a big deal. There's nothing down. Don't even go worry about going down there. You know, it's, it's only, you know, $150 billion down there. It's, there's, there's really not much to look at down there. I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's a trip because those people that do know those numbers, they must do some mental gymnastics to say, but yeah. Yeah. What are those meetings like when, you know, the first presidency and the presiding Bishop Rick and, you know, the managing director and chief information officer, uh, investment officer of EPA all get into a room every quarter and they decide, well, the world has got some issues will continue to have $40 million be given on the COP side, not the EPA side, um, and set that up as our testimony to the world that we're doing a charitable work. And and we're just not going to use any money out of EPA again for another quarter. Um, we feel good about that. We prayed about it. And we feel like Jesus is telling us that we need to put another $1 or $2 billion into the reserves and not use any of the reserves uh, <laughs> for, for another quarter. Do you guys feel it? Well, I, prayed, I feel about that's what we should do. They that must happen because they have this meeting, at least on, on paper, they have this meeting, right? But it's, I, can, I can imagine it would be a huge testimony boost to, to say, look at, how, look at how much the windows of heaven have opened up and the Lord is preparing us for the last days. So let's have this EPA, you know, be where we put our mountain of money so that when we need it, like when we really, really need it, when like when we need it, need it, it's there. <laughs> Yeah. There was one person at EPA who apparently said maybe the purpose of the, these reserves is not to be used ever at all. It's, the, it's to be a testimony to the brethren that this is a true and, and noble work. Right. Because, <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting. But, yeah, you know. it could be. I don't know. Sure. I, but my mind is often going to, wouldn't it be cool if they could somehow invest some of this money into tangible things like gold bars and then fill, and fill those granite caves that uh, they have. And the dream mine. It'd, it'd be like a Mormon Fort Knox, you know? And the thing is, is yeah, the dream mine, fill the Nephite mine with actual gold and say yeah. it was there the whole time. 
but <laughs> stamp little Nephi logos on it. You know, there you can imagine at water cooler conversations at EPA where people say things like this, and then they look around and make sure that no one heard them. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that yeah, you fill up Enzyme Peak. I mean, there's there's Enzyme the archives that are just up. Was it Big Cottonwood Canyon or whatever, where they keep all the microfilm for the church's yeah. family history department? You know, imagine filling that up with gold bars, and and then the imagery of the Lord of the Rings comes in very strongly. Where <laughs> there are these very very old men who will not part with the single coin and they have to fight to keep their gold and no one can know about it and no one can see it no one can get close to it no one can use it for anything despite the fact that there's a burning village you know down in mm. lake town or whatever and they really have a mountain of gold mm. and that mountain is it's a hoard and they don't have any uses for it. I mean, at least the dwarves of Erebor made things with their gold that were kind of. <laughs> oh, you are just... speaking Tom's language when you're talking about those dwarves. Yeah, I was Lord like, is he still in Lord of the Rings or in Harry Potter now? No, it was Hobbit. <laughs> so, yeah, the Hobbit, so, yeah. So Lars, you, you, you referenced earlier that there were two times that the EPA um, did a disbursement of funds um, that were illegal, that were contrary to their charter. Yeah, to the Articles of Incorporation. Yeah. You know, it, it is one thing to have very conservative principles and to say, we're just going to, we're going to be lean and austere and balance our budgets on the COP side so well every year that we can stow away a, a billion or two. That's what we kind of tell our membership that they should behave that way. We should probably behave that way too. We'll just kind of do that forever and not really worry about how big they're growing. Some people probably would be fine that they're not spending the money on anything religious, educational, charitable, despite the fact that there's, they got tax breaks for that. And there's an expectation that you have and strings attached when you have a tax exempt status. But putting all that aside, I don't think there's anything immoral necessarily about just saving a lot, right? Yeah. That, that isn't necessarily a bad principle. But then there's the misapplication of funds, which kind of, if you want to be charitable and gracious to the leaders of the church, they might've just made a few bad judgments in accounting and uh, didn't, didn't think it through all the way. Maybe they didn't have as much time and that they needed to make that decision and, and they did it and they, they hoped that no one would know about it. And now people know about it and they're going to have to live with those consequences. I don't know if anyone's going to have to go to jail over it, but the details there are that EPA can only make distributions for religious, educational, and charitable purposes. But between 2009 and 2014, it did dole out $2 billion in total the first was a $600 million payment to Beneficial Financial Group, which owned a life insurance company called Beneficial Life. And it turned out that after the financial crisis of 2008, you can think of insurance companies like banks to a large extent. And so they got into a bad position and needed to be bailed out. So they could have raised money on the COP side from other businesses, for-profit entities, but then people would know, a lot of people would know that there was a problem and that they bailed out a for-profit business. So they decided to use money that was readily available and that much fewer people knew about and that they didn't think anyone would necessarily in the future know about. And that was to use the treasury funds from EPA. Of course, you can't do that because bailing out a for-profit business that got underwater is not a religious educational charitable purpose. Oh, So it, it, it wasn't Zion's bank that they bailed out, it was an insurance company? Uh, great. Yeah, that's a good question. So TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief 
program that was created to help bail out all of the big banks that were too big to fail. One of the banks that was bailed out was Zion's Bank. And so while the federal government was bailing out Zion's Bank, the church was bailing out Beneficial Financial Group. Okay. Right? So they happened concurrently or relatively concurrently, yeah. but they were unrelated activities. So, so what, what, like that, that seems like it's a pretty bold claim to make. What, what evidence do you have that this happened and that it was illegal right. in, in the way that they did it? Yeah. So that's, especially, if, especially if they were trying to hide it. Right. Well, and they did. They, that happened in 2009 and now it's 2019. And this is the first that anyone outside of EPA is talking about it. Um, but you can see in the full paper, there are exhibits that contain documents from EPA. They're clearly EPA made. And in those documents, it shows that those distributions were made. And there's evidence financially that is included in what was submitted to the IRS and that show where that money came from. It came out of the EPA treasury account, which of course only had never invested tithing surplus in it. Are, are they and, not able to make a loan to another organization? You know, they could make investments, you know, they make lots of other investments in stocks and bonds and things like that. But if you do make a loan to an organization, then it has to go on your balance sheet as a loan, which means that you have a receivable into the, in the future. The loan has an expectation for being paid back. Right. That didn't happen. This was an outflow that happened under the table. It wasn't an investment activity that can be shown. And the, the money was never paid back because there was no expectation that it would. So it was a distribution and it was a distribution that was unlawful according to the Articles of Incorporation. And they did it so that other businessmen in Utah mostly wouldn't be able to realize that that was what was happening. Okay. Well, what was the second distribution? Yeah, the second one had to do with the City Creek Mall. The financing for the City Creek Mall started to get put in place in 2006. And in 2007, Deseret News announced that the financing was all in place and that the church had stipulated publicly that no tithing money would be used for the building of the mall, that everything would be done through one of its property reserves called Property Reserves, Inc. And that might have been the plan, but that is not what ended up happening. And again, the EPA ended up bailing out the City Creek Mall project with $1.4 billion, which was a series of payments between 2009 and 2014. They didn't want to have an unfinished mall. They didn't want downtown to to look like there was a problem. And so they needed to raise a lot of money. Raising equity, of course, is very expensive. Raising money at the cost of debt from banks is expensive and you have to declare your reasons why and that's not something that they wanted to do. And so raising money from tithing surplus has got zero cost of capital because no one has to know about it. The investor isn't demanding a return on that money. And so it was the, the convenient way to go. So they did that again. They haven't done anything like that since and that was several years ago since they made their last payment Okay. So yeah, two very shady activities. There's other shady activities that um, I've gotten wind of that are in that full paper, um, emails, things like that. But all that's relatively small and incidental to the big story, which is EPA is $124 billion big and has blown away every estimate that has ever been made by any institution. Newsweek in 2011 tried to evaluate the size of the assets of the Mormon church and they said it must be $30 billion big. And in that year, EPA had $41 billion in the shoebox, right? 
And then the very next year. And, and that doesn't even include all the assets on the COP side that you're talking about right. just the EPA. Yeah. 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 So then, then Bloomberg does its evaluation the next year and they say, no, no, the Mormon church is about $40 billion big, but that year there were $46 billion in EPA. And if you add up all of the assets of the church, it's difficult, right? Because land it doesn't mark to market like stocks and bonds do every day. They, you know, there's not a tradable amount where you can say this is really what the true valuation of this asset is. And a lot of the assets of the Mormon church are not revenue producing, they're revenue consuming, like church buildings or whatever. So what is the worth of a church building in downtown Philadelphia or wherever it is? You can look at substitutes and surrogates and get yourself tied into knots. But at a high, high level, the total Mormon church is $124 billion in this one reserve. Then you've got Desert Trust Company and lots of other reserves. And that is probably another 20 to 30 to 40 billion. And then they've got all their land. That's a little easier. That's probably another 20 to 30 billion, at least in ARI and PRI. And then they've got City Creek Reserves, all their stuff that they're doing in Arizona. So I mean, another five or 10. And then you've got all the church assets. And then you have all the church for-profit businesses. When you add all of that up, it's very safe to say that the church is at least $200 billion big, maybe closer to $300 billion, but let's be conservative and say 200. Now, there are lots of people out there who throw around crazy numbers like, oh, it's a trillion dollar church or, you know, the church has got half a trillion dollars in this. You hear, you know, podcasters um, in Mormonism. Podcasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear them throw around these terms all the time. And they're, they're just not informed numbers. Yeah. I think that it's, it's a lot safer if you want to hang your hat on a number to say at least 200 billion is the size of the total assets of the Mormon church. And, about, and at least 124 of that is pretty liquid. And there's more. All wow. right. So, so, you, so you've given this letter to the, the IRS. It's been a month. You're, we're, we're recording this before there's any uh, major news push on it, but you're expecting that there'll be a, a news story. And at that point we'll release this podcast. Um, what, what, what is it that, that, uh, you expect to happen or what, what is it that you would like to see happen from all of this, Lars? You know, I have to be very tempered in my expectations. If it turns out, I'm not trying to speak disparagingly about other religions, but if a network of migrating pedophilic priests doesn't cause the Catholic Church to diminish very much. And similar scandals in the Mormon Church having been put into the media over the last couple of years. I think that re religions are just very resilient and it's very difficult for members to change their mind about things. And my purpose, of course, is not to, to get members of the church to, to change their mind about what they should and shouldn't do from a faith perspective. My purpose is just to help the American taxpayer and the tithe payer to know what your tithing goes towards and what it doesn't and to give them enough facts so that when they hear the statements that the brethren make, they can decide for themselves whether or not those statements are fraudulent if the information that I'm providing them is true and then decide how they want to modify their beliefs and their practices so that they can feel like they're doing something that is of as much value in the world as they had thought they had been doing by giving their money to the Mormon church. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I'm curious too, if whether you or the whistleblower um, have, or maybe some of the motives or intentions you'd like to see the church's tax exempt status revoked. 
Uh, at the end of my uh, video that you alluded to, I have a list of calls to action, some for the IRS, some for COP leadership, some for lawmakers, policymakers, Congress, the Senate, right. um, and then another list of things that I would like to see for members and then for just general people in the public. And I'll touch on a few of those things because they, they do represent what I would like to see happen. First, I want the IRS to do their full investigation. If you add up all of the capital gains and returns on capital gains and the compounded interest on that, plus the penalties that they would get for not paying if the IRS decides that they were never a legitimate 501c3 institution in the first place and therefore should have been paying taxes all along, you add all of those up and bring it to the present, it's about a $50 billion fine. And you know they've got more than enough money to pay for that. And I don't want to gouge the church, especially if it would hurt members. When Scientology lost its tax-exempt status and then got it back, for, there was a decade there that a lot of people say what you want about Scientology, but members of Scientology were hurt. And they fought against it pretty hard. And the people who were the worst perpetrators were not the people who were being harmed. And the IRS doesn't like going after churches unless they really feel like they have to make a strong case to do so because it's difficult to collect money from a church. Sometimes the perpetrators flee, and sometimes it's very hard to even prosecute because they don't have a lot of information to go on. Right. I don't think any of those things are the case with the IRS and EPA at this time because I've given them a lot of information. It's not likely that you're going to see the members of the First Presidency flee or go into hiding, although the First Presidency has done that several times in its own history, but not in the modern history. If any money were to be clawed out of EPA, it wouldn't hurt church programs at all. They could lose $100 billion, just snap your fingers, it's gone. No member would know, not one program would be impacted, and it would start growing all over again and be another $100 billion in another 22 years. So I don't think there's a problem with the IRS doing their job and feeling like there's something to collect and that mm -hmm. they can make reparations and restitution for this two misapplications of funds. But I don't think that's where the story should end. It's not really an accounting principles kind of an argument. I and mean, there is some of that. But the bigger picture is the call to action that I make to lawmakers. I don't think it's okay that gigachurches in this country be allowed to hoard so much money with tax breaks and not do anything good with it. And when, when asked what their purpose is, they say it's to be used in the millennium or whatever. So I want laws to change. I want policy to change on that score. And I want people like Henry B. Eyring, who is the, a founding trustee in 1997, still alive, obviously, and in those quarterly meetings, I want him to sit in front of Senator Grassley, who is the person who created the IRS whistleblower program and addendums to the Whistleblower Protection Act um, to make it easier for people to come forward and not be retaliated against so that these kinds of egregious behaviors of megachurches don't happen. I think that he should stand in front of that oversight committee and say, this is the reason why we've never done anything with the $100 billion in 22 years. And I think that would be very hard for him to do, but I, I think it, it needs to be done. Then there's wow. other constituencies like the members themselves. I personally feel that the only way to make a restitution of this magnitude is to say, after you pay the IRS, 50, 30, whatever billion dollars needs to be given back from the COP to all of the poorest of the poor, starting in third world countries, who have given so much, their widows might mean so much more than you know what the wealthy 55-year-old white privileged male who makes $10 million a year and gives 10% of the gross to the church. I'm not asking that that money ever be given back to such a person, but rather that poor 
woman in Mexico that I can see her face right now from when I served on my mission there. They gave everything to the church and lived with dirt floors and they need to be given that money back and with an apology, you know, because taking money from them and just hoarding it is just egregiously, virtually and emotionally violent. It's, it's horrifyingly bad in my own system of ethics. Mm -hmm. So if they just started with the poorest of the poor, and they keep, as you know, immaculate records on all of this, and they just start cutting the checks until they run out of that money. And if they happen to pay off everyone in third world countries and start paying a few people in the United States, well, great, let's do that. I think that would be a great way to make restitution. I'm sure that they will never do anything remotely like that. Yeah, that's very, that's a very, uh, uh, you know, stars in the eyes sort of approach, but I, I like it. I think, yeah. I think it would, it would uh, garner so much faith and trust and, and it would sure change the image of the church in a much more positive light, I think. But mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I wonder Lars, the, 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 the widow in Mexico with the dirt floors that you're able to picture from your mission, if you went directly to that person with the information that you have, what, what kind of response do you think they would have? And, and I'm also thinking about what you said a few minutes ago uh, about the Catholic church and the, and the issues that they've had, uh, other giga churches where religion just doesn't really seem to change when those, they're those kind of big, scandals even though there's a handful of people that would go wow this is this is wrong this needs to change but the religions keep on going that there's there's that suggests to me that there's something that the religion's doing that is much more important and much more powerful in their lives than when scandals like this come up so i i'm wondering with with that that person in mexico that you're imagining what 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 response do you think they would have directly to this or or just a general member of the church really for that matter Yeah. Well, I'll start with the example that you cited. In the areas where I was branch president for over a year of my mission, um, there was such high turnover that virtually everyone that I had known had become inactive. Mm. So I think that if I went to those specific individuals that I was picturing, all of them would be like, well, I kind of figured it out or it didn't work for me. And, and so they would be in a mind space where they could accept the new information and not immediately have a backfire effect start. Because they don't have a loyalty to the church that right. they have to combat. Yeah. So okay. you don't start digging your heels in and, and, and trying to create excuses and getting yourself entrenched. But I do think that if I went down to members that are currently active there, they might even take a little pride in the fact that they're churches has grown to such a size and that yeah. that that might be a testimony just as is a yeah. testimony to the brethren it's a testimony to them that something about it must be right yeah. um i don't think everyone would feel that way you might have seen that i think jenna reese is how you pronounce her last name she writes for religion news network um and sometimes for the salt lake tribune or is it that the salt lake tribune posts some of her work uh, on that site i don't know yeah. but she has some some good thoughts she published something at the beginning of this month about it's it's tithing settlement time i just paid my tithing i've trued up for the whole year how come i don't feel better about it and i just wanted to tell her well you don't feel better about it because you know that that money is not going to anything good deep down you you're an educated person you've been reporting on things about the mormon church for a long time you probably have a good sense that it's not actually moving anything charitable around in the world the way that she imagines that a savior would want it to and I think that most thinking members of the church who are able to process without that 
bias and that backfire effect are going to look at this and say, ouch, I really thought you were doing more than that. And actually, you can put a number on it, and I put this in the exhibits of the full paper. If a charitable institution in general does the minimum expectation of like 5% of your assets or 5% of your investment returns per year being spent on charity, so that if you ever lost all of your sources of income, you'd probably be able to have another two or three years worth of run out before you'd have to dissolve your charitable organization. That's kind of like the rule of thumb with not-for-profits. You give away five-ish percent of your assets every year, and then you, you do drives to increase the size of your endowment as needed so that you can always have that metric be true. Well, if the Mormon church had all of the same sizes of its tithing contributions every year, and if the markets were to have performed exactly the same way in this hypothetical scenario as they did perform in reality, but just with the expectation that they were spending 5% of their assets each year on something religious, educational, or charitable, then how big would EPA be today? It wouldn't be 101 billion, right? It would be 34, 35 billion. So that delta is 66 billion. That's the amount of money that implicitly, I mean, there's no formal contract between EPA and the American public, but that was the implicit understanding is the amount of value that would be put into society that didn't go into society. And $66 billion, that's a lot of public trust that I think was violated. And they needed to come up with an opinion as to whether that kind of behavior is representative of what the Lord's Church would do if he were here in person. I think it's, it's a reasonable question for, for them to at least ask themselves. Yeah, I think it's a very yeah. reasonable question to ask. I just don't think it's the kind of question that's a very comfortable question to ask for believing members. But, yeah. but it's, a, it's yeah. a great quote to lead this uh, podcast with. Yeah, I've got a couple of fun stories that might be helpful. I know this has been such a highly financial discussion so far, but but there are lots of people in EPA, and they have fun stories sometimes uh, to tell. Should I should I give a few of those, or where where is your head mind headed? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, and and then yeah, a couple minutes on that, and then ready to wrap it up. Okay, sounds good. Um, A fun story is that uh, Boyd K. Packer, when he was just a breath away from uh, becoming the next CEO of the COP, the next Mormon prophet, um, senior apostle, goes to Roger Clark, who is the managing director at EPA at the time, and is still the managing director, and says, I need to know how big EPA is, where, where is the money, I need some details, I got to start thinking about how to prepare for this. And Roger Clark told Boyd K. Packer that he was not allowed to tell him such information. And that apparently perturbed Boyd K. Packer significantly. One of your infants could, I'm sure, impersonate him far better than I could, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> He apparently went away pretty unsatisfied, and then he he died before he was able to become a trustee of EPA. But that just goes to show that the most senior apostle outside of Thomas S. Monson at the time had no idea how big EPA was and wanted to know. And many, many junior apostles, you would think no, they don't know. There are really only like 15 people in the entire church that know that there's a hundred billion dollars just sitting right there not doing anything except for getting bigger so i think that's kind of that's kind of telling that you can't even tell the junior apostles about how much money is sitting there and he was a senior apostle well you don't want him to get alarmed 
Like yeah, even uh-huh. even this information makes me alarmed, and I'm not even one of those old white guys. Yeah. I think most people are going to be alarmed, especially by the fact that EPA brings in more investment returns per year than all the members contribute in a year. From this point on, everyone could pay whatever they pay in tithing right now to some other institution and get the same size deduction on their individual taxes, but those charitable donations would actually do something in the world and EPA would still be growing. I don't know what the rank and file member will do. You know, will they rank and file out or will they, you know, find some way to deal with the cognitive dissonance or are they going to create a defense mechanism psychologically or are they going to become a little bit more lax in their own definitions? 10% of your income was 10% of your increase and that meant something different in Joseph Smith's time. You guys have heard about Rock Waterman's take on this as well as everyone else's take on this. There's there's a <laughs> myriad of approaches, but maybe they're going to reduce their tithing and maybe not pay on gross. Or I think there'll be lots of little things that are going to add up, but because it's all numbers and the church is so good at monitoring these numbers, they're going to see an effect and they're going to react. It might take a couple of years for them to come up with a sound policy reaction. But when they do, it will be like you say, it'll, it'll be alleviating the stress on the missionary program or it'll be adding more to BYU so that, I mean, tuition is already pretty low, but making it easier for low-income people. Harvard does this. If you're a low-income person and you get into Harvard on merit, you get your tuition covered by Harvard's endowment 100% because they want to equalize opportunity. And I think that's such a laudable thing. And they might take pages from the playbooks of other large endowments that are doing similar things. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating to hear the kind of criticism that Harvard goes through, but then BYU or any other schools that are sort of owned or managed by the church don't get anywhere near the scrutiny. Yeah, that really is true. I think religion still has a very soft spot and kind of to further answer the question that you asked earlier, Glenn, how can religions have such amazing staying power, you know, despite the scandals, despite all of these things? I think it's because it fulfills a need that society hasn't figured out how to fulfill. And that is we love community. We love music. We love charity and service and brotherhood. We like the idea that there is someone who is like-minded. We give, it gives us an opportunity to, to create an us in group, even though that sometimes creates problems with other out groups, but these things are biologically rooted in us and churches satisfy that on a lot of dimensions. I do have some faith in the broader society that we will be able to find replacements for those things, but I don't think we'll find the replacements fast enough to cause churches to, to diminish in size, or at least the Mormon church to diminish in size too much. We already know that it's, it's decreasing very slowly in the United States. I think Matt Martinich, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but the guy who does the Camor.com project now that the church doesn't uh, release any of its statistics on growth during general conference anymore he's kind of taken that up and so he's kind of my primary source for understanding population metrics in the united states but in general there's decline in many places especially europe some in the united states it's going to continue people talk about the rise of the nuns you know and pew research foundation atheism secularism at least is on the rise and that's because we're doing a better job of living according to truth and less according to faith. 
faith has a place. It can't ever go away. You need it. You need folklore, right? You need stories. This is how people bind themselves to each other, myths. And the Mormon ones are all very internally consistent, baptism for the dead and all that. But they're not very externally consistent. They don't agree with science. They don't. And in terms of business, it's going to be really hard for them to continue to do, donate so much money to the Mormon church. And so that will cause problems, but it'll be a slow burn, I'm sure. All right. This was a lot to take in, Lars. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate the hours and hours that it must have spent for you to put all this together. But Yeah, wow. you, you said that you, when we talked earlier, um, you mentioned that you, you, you've been working on this for a couple months. You know, I did. I, I decided that it was something that needed such a dedicated focus to it that it would never happen if I tried to do it on nights and weekends, right? It just... It, it wouldn't materialize because it takes so much attention to detail, especially if you're going to make a case to the IRS and one that's strong enough that someone would be willing to say, I'll submit this person's writing as supportive under penalty of perjury in order to do right by the whistleblower. I had to really make sure that I, I dotted all the, the I's and crossed all the T's so to speak. So do you have any concerns about the church coming after you for like defamation or anything like that? Well, I know they've already started to do intimidation strategies to me and to the whistleblower. You probably saw in the, in the video, they went to my parents who were serving missions for the Mormon church and tried to pressure them into containing this story, which I considered to be entirely rude. And, you know, people have stopped by the whistleblower's house and said things like, we want to make sure that you're not going to do anything foolish. What, so, so you mentioned the video. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll link to that on the Infants on Thrones website. Um, and we'll link to the 74-page letter to the IRS director. Mm-hmm. Um, any other way, if, if people are interested in getting in touch with you and finding out more yeah, it's IRS letter at protonmail.com. I use protonmail because it's, it's encrypted. It sends stuff out of, out of Switzerland, so it's a little safer way to – and it's, it doesn't use my personal email address. I mean, people can find me if they really want to, but I'd prefer that any correspondence be made there. All right, cool. Yeah. I really appreciate you guys giving me a chance to, to share this with you, to, to introduce it to the world. Hopefully, it'll get a little bit of a following. What, what's most important to me is that the conversation be started. And however it turns out, that parties start owning up to their behavior, and we are able to create policies that lead the country in a way that people can maybe behave a little bit more religiously, educationally, and charitably. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. I love it. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Night. Yeah. Bye. Hello there. This is your brother. And I have something to say concerning these people. If they do not listen to every minute of every episode of Infants on Thrones, they shall be totally missing out. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum money. They could buy anything in this world with money. On second thought, just give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. A small token for which they have pledged their eternal souls. Anyone for the closing prayer? But you can keep them for the best and please not give me more
Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.